Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome to Foothills Christian Church. I'm Douglas Peak. I've uh, been lead pastor here for 25 years, and I want to welcome all of you who may be visiting for the first time here on our main campus, or if you're uh, invited over to a church at home or a micro church, and you're uh, sitting in someone's living room, I want to welcome you, even if it's your first time. And I'd just like to share with you, I think that you found something special. Uh, God is doing great things and amazing things in the life of Foothills Christian Church. And just since the beginning of the pandemic, our church has doubled in size. And I believe that's because what happened is people have started to realize that fluff is not enough. You know, you need something a little more substantial in life. And they want real answers to real life questions. And that's what we're all about. We're not interested in telling people what to think. We're not even really interested in telling you what to believe. What we want to do is give you uh, what God is saying, the truth of the scripture, the truth of the reality in which we live and help you think for yourself, make your own decisions, chart your own course. Because in the end, the most important thing is your faith in Jesus and how you know him, right? It's, you know, not knowing me, uh, Hate to admit it, but knowing me isn't really going to help you a whole lot, you know, especially in front of the big guy, you know. Uh, so it's just really powerful what God is doing here. And we're starting a brand new series called Faith in Science, and it's, we're trying to ask a simple question, and that is, how much do they really conflict with one another? Can you believe in both? And it seems like today the general consensus is no, absolutely not. They're mutually exclusive. And so in order to kind of kick this off, uh, we're doing a little bit of a format change. At Foothills, what we like to do is we like to take a passage of Scripture and then kind of camp out on it for like three or four weeks and kind of dig into it, allow you to read it, kind of absorb it a little bit. But this is a format change. So if you're visiting, this is a little bit different. And I'm going to build a context because sometimes you have to take a step back, right, and see how it all fits together to try to understand what's really going on and why is there so much turmoil in America, particularly, uh, why is there such uh, intellectual conflict, particularly over this issue? And so we're going to kind of step back, look at it, build a context, and dig into it. Now, in order to start off properly, though, I want to tell you my story. My story is that uh, I was raised in the home of a scientist. Uh, my father was a research doctor, and he specialized in pediatric endocrinology. And his biggest thing was he uh, pioneered a lot of the studies uh, early on in the pituitary gland and actually what it did. He said, when I started, we thought the pituitary gland was like your appendix. You didn't need it. And now it is the number one gland in your brain that controls all of your hormones. It's a gatekeeper. He also, his claim to fame is, is he was on the team that discovered and started to implement and test human growth hormone. So if you know anybody who's taken synthetic now, today it's synthetic, human growth hormone, my dad is one of the people that they can say thank you to. Uh, my dad died very early. He was 50 years old when he died and he had a heart attack. But when he died, the university there where he had set up his research center uh, took all of his studies and all of his research that was published, like in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine and so forth, and they bound it together. My father published over 86 research studies uh, in that short period of time. And so I grew up 
in a science family. All of my friends were scientists and the sons of scientists. Uh, a family that we spent a lot of time was with Dr. Phil Eaton and his wife, Dr. Eaton. They were both leading research doctors uh, in their time. Dr. Eaton has published over 200 scientific studies that have been published uh, over the course of his career. We also hung out with a renal specialist, uh, for a kidney doctor, a plastic surgeon that pioneered a lot of the techniques for plastic surgery uh, that were reparative in nature for burn wounds. Uh, we hung out a couple ER doctors. We all spent time with their, I, I grew up with their kids. A bunch of them became doctors too. And, and so it was pretty normal for me to be in science, you know, just that whole genre is just Thanksgiving, Christmas, 4th of the July, backpack trips, skiing trips, all, you know, all of our stuff was all in that group. And the reason why I hung out with all these people wasn't because they all came together in the medical community. The reason why we knew all these people and all these scientists is because they all went to the same church. And that's how we knew them. So I grew up thinking that everybody who was a scientist had faith in God, you know? I mean, it was just like, because that was just how it was normalized for me. So I was shocked when I got to high school biology and my biology teacher told me that you cannot believe in evolution, which is scientifically proven, and have a belief in God. They are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. I go, hmm, there's a conflict there. And so I went home and I told my dad about what my biology teacher said. And I don't know if he was busy or not, but he kind of harumphed, you know, <sighs> He says, tell them to teach you biology and not religion. And I thought he was talking about Christianity. Later on, I found out he wasn't. He was talking about something else. And we'll dig into that in just a moment. One of the things I had to do in high school is I had to listen to uh, this gentleman who I really liked his stuff, but his, this is Dr. Carl Sagan. He was an accomplished cosmologist and astrophysicist. Uh, he had on PBS a show about cosmology, but he also said that uh, people who believe in religion are wasting their life on a spirit fantasy. So I was a little bummed by that. Uh, by the way, on the phone app, uh, I have all of the links and docu to document where all of these things were said so that you know I'm not just like making things up or paraphrasing. But uh, somebody did say, though, on the phone app, some phones kind of cut off all the links. So if you'd like those, be glad to provide them for you. But I was told by him that it, I was living in a spirit fantasy. Then I went to Manhattan Christian College in Manhattan, Kansas. They call it the Little Apple. <laughs> and when I got there, uh, in order for my degree at the time uh, to be accredited. Manhattan Christian College is now fully accredited, but back then I had to go to K-State. I had to take uh, like math and science courses and things of that nature. And so I was so excited about physics because I loved physics, got into physics. And on the first day, I'm in a room with, you know, 800 other students and the head of the department comes out and he turns on an overhead. Now, an overhead is this antiquity machine that broadcasts stuff up on the wall. And he had a Bible verse up there from Joshua chapter 10, where it says that the sun stood still while Joshua and the Israelites, you know, wreaked their vengeance on the Amorites or something of that nature. And I thought, wow, 
wham, we're going to talk about physics in the Bible. And he went on to say about how the reason we study physics is because it shows and proves all the myth and fantasies and legends that people believe in religion. And now we all know religion has been completely debunked. And so his goal over the course of the semester was not to teach us physics, but was to talk us out of faith. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So that's what I was told. Later on, I was told by this guy with the bow tie that uh, if I believed in, the, in creation, that I have a small brain. I was told by this guy, and I really liked him because he's so funny and he introduced kids to science. I, I really liked that, but I don't know why he would say that. This guy is Dr. Richard Dawkins in biology, fairly renowned, uh, really quite amazing, but that's not why anybody knows him. Nobody's read any of his bi stuff on biology except other biologists. What he's really known for is that he is an atheist and he really dislikes God. He dislikes people who believe in God. He says, I don't hate religious people. I just hate what they stand for. He says religion is a virus. And he also believes that if you teach a religion to your kids, your kids should be taken away from you because that's a form of child abuse. I was told by this guy who I really like, um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's uh, kind of, he's done a lot of really great work and it's really kind of fun, but he, he, also told me that science has disproved the existence of God, and there's no proof that God exists. So the, my question is, is that if this is what I was told, is what I was told is true. And I believe that you are told this all the time. And guess who's going to be told this a lot? Your kids and your grandkids. Do these things really contradict? Is it true? Is what I'm being told being true. Like when he talks about astrophysics and cosmology, I believe what he says. But then he switches over to talk about God. Is that true too? Just because he's an astrophysicist. Well, as with all things, when I ever ask myself a question, I like to dig a little deeper and I like to uncover it and figure out, is this really true? And one of the ways you do that is you go back to see where did these ideas originally come from? So let's dig into that real quick before we get to understand how Jesus and people who followed Jesus have actually impacted science. So I'd like to kind of dig into that first. And so we're setting a context here so that our study from here on makes a little bit more sense, right? So what, what's happening is I want to tell you about this guy and um, he's got mega sideburns, all right? His name is John William Draper. Now he wrote a book about the conflict between faith and or, uh uh, religion and science. And then he later did the seminal work on a second book called The History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. And then there was another guy whose name is on that book because it went through various uh, publications and editing and all that kind of stuff. But you can buy both of these books on amazon.com today. Now, what's interesting is what he said basically is that science and Christianity are mutually exclusive. You cannot believe both, all right? They're at war with one another, and this is called the conflict thesis. Now, what's interesting is that about 20 to 30 years after that, historians completely debunked that theory. Today, there's not a single historical scholar worth their salt who buys into the conflict theory. But what's fascinating is everybody else does. Even though every historical scholar has debunked it, everybody else seems to believe it and propagate it. When you go to university, the university administration, many people in the professors propagate the conflict 
theory and try to convince you that it is real. In high school, when you go to some of your STEM courses, a lot of the teachers there will propagate the conflict theory, even though it is debunked. Uh, if you go to work, people in your work, politicians, the news media, the mainstream media, all kinds of people who write movies and tell stories about our culture, all adhere to the conflict thesis, even though scholars have debunked it. So why is it so strong? Why is it so popular today in our culture, even though historians have debunked it for what they call the complexity theory? Well, here's kind of what's going on, and I'd like to give you just a basic understanding of categories to really grab onto this, to know why it's so popular in our culture today. Well, first of all, you have a thing called science, right? And this is what science is in and of itself. Science is the intellectual and practical activity so it's a practical activity, something you do, encompassing the systematic study. Systematic study is important, all right? The structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experimentation. This is the Oxford Language Dictionary. Now, basically what it means is that science is a way that you make observations, right? And then what you do is you produce a hypothesis, and then you test it by experimentation. You try to take all your bias out of that. And then what you do is you uh, evaluate your conclusions, and you adjust or make new hypotheses based upon your experiment, right? And over time, other people will reproduce what you've done and confirm whether you're accurate or not. This is called the scientific method, and here's the guy who came up with the scientific method. The father of the scientific method is Francis Bacon. He was a philosopher, a theologian, a mathematician, and the father of the scientific method. What's up with the collar? <laughs> that is one fashion statement that should just never have taken root, but it did. In 1561 to 1626, what's really interesting about Francis Bacon is he was a devout Anglican and very committed to his faith in God. And it's because of his faith in God that he came up with the scientific method. So what we have here, and I think I have a little graphic for you to show you, is that we have this thing called science. And what science does is it says, we want to discover all of the laws principles, rules that govern the structure of our reality, which is natural or material. So space-time, the universe in which we live, from really, really big stuff like universes, galaxies, planets, to really, really, really small stuff like quantum mechanics and quarks and BBs and even the Higgs boson. These things that are so small. And we're studying all the rules of this stuff. My personal opinion, science in and of itself, is doing a pretty good job. I mean, the discoveries and the depth to which they go, very, very impressive, which what's happening with the, the strength of our scientific community. Now, what I do feel, though, is something is happening with the scientific community. We discovered this over the last year, is that people realize that science can be manipulated politically and for political gain, can it? And sometimes people use science uh, and only listen to science when it benefits their own agenda. We've discovered that. Now, how is it that science is losing a little bit of its trustworthiness? Well, that's because there's something else going on 
in our society, and that is there is a belief system, a faith system called naturalism. You might know it as atheism. Now, this is a faith-based system. That's what this is. But a naturalist says the only thing in existence is the material universe. There's nothing outside of that. Now, when you first listen to people who propagate naturalism as a belief system, they say things like this, and that is, uh, well, there is no God. I just don't believe in God. But uh, these are what I call unsophisticated atheists. A lot of times these people have come to this conclusion, maybe because they had a bad experience with religious people, they had a bad experience with the church, they had a bad experience, you know, they, they look at the organization of Christianity, you know, like maybe Eastern Orthodoxy or the Russian Orthodox Church or Catholicism, and they go, how is all this symbology and all this iconclastic behavior and the outfits and all this stuff, it just doesn't make any, any sense to me, and so they kind of reject that. But sophisticated scientists, intellectual scientists, people like Sam Harris, Dillahunty, Dr. Rosenberg, a lot of these guys, the, kind of the list goes on and on, they all write extensively uh, because they know that simply, you can't just say, I don't believe in God. Because when you choose not to believe something here, guess what you're believing by default? Something else. And here's what you believe. And this is what they postulate. They postulate things along the lines of that you have no soul. There is no you that is you. You have no consciousness. Your consciousness is an illusion. You do not have free will. You think you chose to come here today? No, you didn't. And God didn't direct you here today at all. The reason you hear is because your brain is a neochemical machine that simply predetermines your behavior. So you may think that you have free will, but you really don't. Oh, by the way, your life has no meaning and it has no purpose. This universe could care less whether you're in existence or not. As a matter of fact, there's only one driving thing in your DNA, and that is to pass your DNA on. Now, they can't explain why that is. But they say that, and I appreciate their honesty in doing so. You could read Sam Harris's book on free will. You can read a number of these other books. Dillahunty says, yes, by the way, there is no objective morality. All morality is subjective. And that right there is frightening when you think about it. Now, in the con then you have a third thing. And you know what the third thing is? It's a faith-based system called theism. And that is, well, there is a God. Now, listen to how this happens. Why is there a conflict? Because these guys and these guys are recruiting. That's why. That's basically it. Now, what's really fascinating is these guys, which I'm one, so take this with a little bit of bias that I have. These guys are recruiting this way. Your life has a purpose. God loves you. And if you're over here, that's okay. You're misguided. You know, admit you're being misguided and come join and party with us. These guys, on the other hand, the way they recruit is you're an idiot 
who doesn't understand anything. There is no purpose in life. Until you stop being a moron and wake up, you'll never understand why this is better. You need to work on your presentation. <laughs> Just a little bit. But that's basically their point. And so what you have is that's why you have a conflict, right? And because our culture and our society is not a big fan of this. Our society wants to be a secular society, right? It tends to favor and highlight their recruitment process. And their recruitment process is based, I know it's a big word, but I want you to kind of do, is it's on postmodern deconstructionist thinking. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is postmodernism is a philosophy. In other words, it's a way I think about stuff. And I've been trained, most of us have all been trained to be deconstructionist in our thinking. You know what that means? That means that when I look at something, all I got to do is find one flaw and that justifies me and not believing it. I don't have to believe that because it's flawed. Well, maybe it's not, but I see a flaw or I think it's flawed. I describe it this way. It's going up and looking at the Mona Lisa in the, uh, in the Louvre there, and you walk up and you see a, a brushstroke that's a mistake or a flaw, and you go, ah, that's not a work of art, piece of junk. I don't have to believe that because there's a mistake, there's a flaw. So what it does is it teaches you skepticism, and it's easy to be a biased skeptic in anything. It's easy to criticize, isn't it? There's, you can always find a flaw. And so what happens is that our culture uh, produces that. Now, what I want to do is share with you what is our culture constantly uh, propagate is their claim. And what is their claim, okay? Here's their claim. Naturalists claim that faith is irrational, meaning there's no reason to it. It's myth. It's fake. That's why if you buy into it, you have a small brain, not a big brain. Now, they go on to say, belief in God actually hinders human growth and potential because it squelches knowledge and the discovery of knowledge. And then finally, science has actually disproven God. In other words, there is no God. So I'd like to just kind of say, what does the Bible respond to this in the early followers of Christ? Do they believe what the naturalists claim about them or maybe something different? Well, what I'd like to share with you is something different. Now, when it comes to knowledge and reason and whether or not it's irrational, if you turn to uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 52, it says the following. Let me get there real quick here. Luke chapter 1152. And here is what it says. It'll be up on the screen. Jesus is speaking. He's talking to the Pharisees. He goes, woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to what? Knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have, here's what's most important, hindered those who are entering. So Jesus Christ himself said, look, knowledge is a phenomenal pursuit, and I am putting a curse of woe upon all those who hinder everybody else from gaining or entering into knowledge. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can read what Paul says uh, to the Corinthians. He says, For in him you have been enriched in every way. 
with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. So we see here very early on is that the, Jesus Christ and then one of his apostles, Paul, are saying knowledge is a noble pursuit. There is no hindrance here or squelching of knowledge. I believe that's a refutation of the claim of a naturalist. The early followers of Jesus Christ uh, said a lot about reason and rationality as a part of your faith. Now, Justin Martyr was born in 100 AD, and he died in 165 AD. What's interesting is the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos wrote down the book of Revelation somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. So five years after that, Justin Martyr was born. So he's hanging out with the same guys, you know? I mean, it's very, very close. He said that reason is absolutely critical to a vibrant faith. Tertullian, an early church father from 160 to 225 AD, he said, reason is a thing or a gift from God to you. St. Augustine wrote in between three, uh, he lived from 340 AD to 425 AD. And he said that, let us not despise the thing that God created within us, which is reason. Today, Rodney Stark, who is a historian at Baylor University, professor there, he wrote in one of his books, since Jesus left no scripture, it was imperative that what was received by faith be reasoned out into everyday life by his followers. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have to have reason because you know how Christianity is so unique? Christianity is so unique is that it wasn't a religion. Take all of the religions out there today that predominate throughout the globe. 95% of people out there, they're either, uh, in, they're either Muslim, which is Islam. They're Hindus, or a subset of that in China is Buddhism, right? Then there is Christianity in three major forms, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism, all right? And then there's Judaism. Now, out of all of those, guess what? Every single one, with one exception, you are required to follow a certain dietary habits, right? You have to eat certain things and you can't eat other things. The one that doesn't teach that is Christianity. You know, there is no Christian cookbook, right? There isn't one. Guess what? In all these other ones, you are required to dress in a certain way. Guess what? There is no Christian fashion standard. Practically speaking, it might be good if we had some, because some people have no fashion sense. <laughs> but you travel throughout the globe. You know, you talk to Pastor Harv. I mean, I think he's been to every country out there. And he's like, yeah, I'll hang out with Christians over here. They dress this way. They eat this stuff, you know. And I'm always like, well, what crazy thing did you have to eat, you know? I mean, we share stories about all these weird things. There's no dietary guidelines. There's no specific dress code. There's no specific like, oh, I have to say prayers in this way and this thing five times. There's none of that because Jesus Christ didn't come to start a new religion. He came to remove the conflict between you and God so that you could be at peace with him and discover faith. It's a beautiful Thing. And because of that, guess what Christians have been doing ever since? When they come to know Jesus in faith, they have to reason out everyday life and what that looks like. So, so the other claim they made is that science disproves God because a naturalist believes in and of its core that science 
uh, is a study of the natural world and nothing is beyond the natural world. Well, this is where we get into a very important verse in Romans chapter 1. And this is Paul writing to the Romans, which is a pretty heavy-duty book of doctrine and theology and all that kind of stuff. And this is what he says in verse 20. It will be up on the screen. And he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. Okay, now these are things that you just can't see with your naked eye, right? Well, what, there's something invisible. And what are they? His eternal power and divine nature. So the nature of God isn't something that, you know, we can go down to the bookstore and see what it is, or you can't stand, um, uh, you know, see a painting of it or get a text or an email or a book, right? Um, now, what, what, he, what he's saying is that that stuff is invisible quality, but then look, notice what he says. You can see them clearly. Okay, wait a second. You just said they're invisible. How can I see them clearly? Well, here's how. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. See, what he's saying is that you can look at what he created and in doing so, you can discover his divine invisible attributes. This is really what launched the scientific revolution. We'll dig into that later in this series. But basically what he's saying is that when you look at something that has been made, then you can learn stuff about the maker right? You can learn that. Like when you go to uh, see a painting, you know, you can walk into the Louvre and you go over here and you see these rich representations of human faces with medieval clothes on, rich, deep colors, uh, doing things in churches and stuff like that. And you look at that and you go, wow, that's a Rembrandt. Then you go over to another room and you see this wonky, weird thing that's sort of human with a big bulging eyeball and triangles on it and funky stuff and a dog that's upside down with its head backwards. You go, oh, that's a Picasso. <laughs> you know, and what does that tell you? Rembrandt had an eye for detail and rendering the human face in its greatest uh, accuracy. Picasso, I think he was smoking something when he painted <laughs> Now, that's an opinion. It's not scientific fact. <laughs> when, you go, when you go out and you buy a car, right? If you go out and you buy a Ford Mustang, right? What do you see? You go, oh, well, this is a Ford, right? But then you look on the side of that Ford, and what do you see? You see a, a little Cobra down there, and you go, oh, that's a 5.0, you know? That baby will get up. And then you'll go and you'll see a Ford Mustang that doesn't look like a Ford Mustang at all. You know, it's got these nice curves on it. It's got, you know, between 700 and 900 horsepower. And it has a little Cobra on there. And then it has this little name on it called Shelby. And then what do you do? You go, oh, I so want to drive that. What does that tell you? Ford made that one. But then one came off production, and a man by the name of Carol Shelby, who's now passed away, and it's his enterprise that does it, and they totally rebuilt and modified it, right? You know, when you get in a German car, what does a German car tell you about the designers, you know? Uh, when you get an Italian car, what does that tell you about the designers, you see, that's what he's saying is that in the design itself, in the thing that was made, you can learn stuff about who created or designed it. Now, this is what's really interesting is that theists 
and science both agree you cannot prove or disprove God with science. See, science agrees with that. Theists agree with that. So the only one out of three that's in conflict are naturalists. Because naturalists say that this is all there is. And since science can't prove it, it doesn't exist. Well, how do you refute that? How do you refute that? Well, you have to ask yourself this underlying presupposition, and that is this. Can science prove everything that exists? And the answer to that is no, it cannot. You see, people who are intellectually honest know this, is that science cannot prove moral values. You can't prove the existence of moral values scientifically. You cannot prove ascetics or beauty through science. You cannot prove mathematics through science. You can't even prove logic through scientific means. But we know these things exist, and we use them every single day. The list goes on and on. We don't have time to dig into it all. So the underlying premise is that science can only prove what exists in what? The natural world. But what if there's something outside of the natural world? What if there's a part of you that's outside of the natural world? That would be called your soul. It would call your spirit. And out of your soul and out of your spirit is where you experience some of the greatest things about living in this body, right? Like love and faith and hope, meaning and purpose, direction. I can leave this world a better place than I found it. That's called altruism. You can't prove that in a test tube. You see, when it comes right down to it, in this series, I have one goal. And here's my goal is to say that theism and people who are theistic in their worldview have more in common with science than atheists do. It's not to just say they're wrong. What it is is to say these guys have more in common and more support and affinity with this than these guys do. This is the one that's irrational. This is the one that is illogical. Now, you might be listening online, or you came to visit, and you're skeptical. And you say, yeah, okay, you're biased. You've quoted people, you know, the Bible. I don't believe in the Bible. And you say, uh, the people you quote are all on your side. And I said, that's a fair point. So let me read to you a quote from a book written by an atheist, an agnostic, who doesn't believe in God, and he's ethnically a Jew. His name is Dr. David Berlinski. He got a degree in physics from Princeton University, and he was a professor of mathematics and cosmology and other things at Stanford University for a very long time before he retired. Highly respected. And he wrote a book saying that, I love this, I don't know about that, but these guys are saying things that are unscientific. Listen to what he said. Has anyone provided proof of God's in existence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. 
Are physicists and biologists willing to believe anything so long as it is not religious thought? That's close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century, World War I, World War II, and all the terrible stuff, that atheism in communism, democratic socialism, in the Nazi regime, Mao Zedong's uh, cultural revolution, the Khmer uh, 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 guys in Cambodia, and what they did, they called the killing fields. He says, look, not even close to being close. He says, is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences today? That's pretty close. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils or the local university board and you will be flogged in the synagogues. The temples of our secular society today are Twitter, are the media, movies, and they give you a reputational flogging. And that's what will be done. So don't be surprised if it happens. Now, during this series, I hope to show you that theism is so much more in line with science and atheism. And the reason why we're doing this and why it is so important is because these people have an agenda and they're recruiting you to your side. And you know where they do it more than any place else? They do it in high school and the university. And their goal, like my physics professor, has one agenda, and that is to get you to question what you really believe, recruit you to their side by spending all their time talking about how irrational these people are. And guess what? They do have a lot of fodder to use for their canon. 2,000 years of Christian church history, a lot of crazy, weird stuff has happened. But the truth of the matter is, is that, is that, is that the efficacy or veracity for the actual postulates of what Jesus Christ claimed? Not really. It's a weaker argument. It's a deconstructionist argument. And, and what happens is when kids come out of, well, they're kids to me today, sorry about that, uh, out of university, they don't know what to believe anymore. They don't know what to believe. You know, I can't tell you how many times young people have gone off to college, they grew up in a church, they went to their youth group, they loved their youth group, you know, they had great friends in their youth group, their youth group had really great parties, and, and they had a place to connect and go, but nobody in their youth group ever told them that this was going on, and when they go to university, their faith is going to be attacked and deconstructed. They go, and their faith is completely unraveled in front of them, and they go, I don't know what to believe, and then their parents are sending me emails and saying, yeah, we were involved in that church over there, we were doing all this could you please meet? I know this is your thing. Could you meet with my kid and straighten them out? And I'm like, I'll do whatever I can, but you're trying to push water back over the bridge. Because if I was in a secular society, if I was trying to recruit people, then the last thing I would want to do is have kids come out of university knowing what they believe, why they believe it, and you can't convince them otherwise.
That's what I would fear if I was one of those guys. Because when you're in a secular society and you don't know what you believe, those are the people who are the easiest to influence, the easiest to manipulate, and the easiest to control. Because they don't think for themselves because they don't know how. They don't know how to find a course that says, this is true and this is false. Stop ruining my life. I'm not going to listen to that because it's a lie and it's a deception. If I was a secularist, that's exactly what I'd want. That's where I'd want all the people to be because the thing that I fear most is people who know right from wrong and stand on their conviction because every single time they will be in my way. Karl Marx. That's why we're doing this and that's why I'm passionate about it. Join me in this journey. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.